It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Before this episode begins, I want to tell you about something a little time sensitive that I'm part of, which is a three-day virtual conference called Love Yourself First, How to Develop Supportive Friendships and Meaningful Relationships. This is really up my alley. I think it's up your alley too, given the topics that I cover. And this is actually something that I was invited to by a previous podcast guest, Coach Lee Hopkins, who did an episode with me in August 2022, invited me to speak and be part of this wonderful group of people. And the conference is taking place February 10th through February 12th, 2023. And there you can learn some different tactics to loving yourself, creating lasting connections that will enrich, enrich your life. This is a paid conference. And so full transparency. There is a small fee involved with it. And I have a promo code. The promo code is, let me pull it up, uncomfortable. 20. So uncomfortable, just like this might get uncomfortable, but uncomfortable 20. And you guessed it, that'll take 20% off the cost of the ticket. And I'll receive a small fraction of that. And the rest of the money goes towards running the event. And if you want to invite a friend to this and buy two tickets in the same transaction, you actually get a 50% off discount on the second ticket. So if you're looking to deepen your relationships, create more joy, affection, and really just learn from people like myself, from Coach Lee, all the amazing speakers that he has brought together for this, you can go to the link in the description. It's a little long. The full link is alwaysloveyourselffirst.eventbrite.com, and that's where you'll en enter that promo code uncomfortable twenty two zero. And I'll put it in the description of this episode and also in the show notes so that you can easily click through and check it out. See if it's a fit for you. Use a discount, invite your friends, share, spread the message if you would like. And now on to the episode. I'm sitting here with Karen today. And this episode does not have much to do with politics, although that may come up a little bit in our conversation. It is, however, election day, the day that this episode comes out. So I was chatting with Karen about the intersection between that and her personal life, as well as her work and how I feel like politics impact a lot of us. And in the United States, it's been an interesting, what has it been, six years or so that it's felt perhaps that we have experienced a lack of unity as a country, a lot of division for a number of different reasons. And our conversation is around mother-daughter relationships. And so we can see the impact that different opinions and perspectives and education and lifestyle and all these different factors that can go into tense relationships. And one of the things that, Karen, I know you like to speak on in your work is what does it look like to set and maintain healthy boundaries with your mother? <laughs> and certainly that can come up during politics. So we might as well just start there because that was what you and I were just talking about and addressing time of year that we're in as of the time this episode comes out. You were sharing with me some details around politics with your mother. And I'm curious, how did you set boundaries with her? And have you been able to maintain them during periods of time where a lot of people are speaking about the president of the country and other political leaders? Yes. It's interesting because it is making me think a little bit about my history and my going all the way back to childhood and how my mom was always interested 
in politics and vocal about politics and engaged. And in fact, I think at one time she, I think she wanted to run for a local office in the town where she was living at the time. But anyway, yeah, when we first started talking, we were talking about the 2016 election, but actually something more recent and more topical came up in a phone conversation that I was having with my mom. And it was the subject of at the time, it was the leaked Supreme Court on abortion. It wasn't yet. Yeah. And here's my cat. (laughs) Just right on time. So she had called me or I'd called her. I don't know. My mom lives in Maine. I live in Connecticut. And so she brings up this, the fact that the Supreme Court thing had been leaked and I just didn't really say much. And she started to talk about it more. And I said, this is a subject that we don't agree on and that's okay. And that is how I maintain a boundary. She brought it up several more times. And I said that same exact thing several more times. This is a subject that we don't agree on. And actually, at one point, I I did say, I don't remember what I said, but we then had a conversation about abortion. And I guess since this is right, like this, we're going to be talking about everything and it might get uncomfortable. (laughs) I had an abortion when I was 21 and my mom was very keen on me having this abortion. She wanted me to have the abortion. I wanted to have the abortion. And, and it was a decision that I do not regret. And it's a decision that I have never regretted. And in fact, I'm actually rather proud of that decision. And so it was interesting given the conversation with my mom, because she said, she brought up the fact that I'd had an abortion. And I said, yeah. And I said, that's, and that surprises me that your, your opinion about this, about the fact that Roe v. Wade will be overturned, that you don't really seem to care and, or that you think it's good. And she said, when I was a kid, that's what we had to deal with. So everybody just needs to take better responsibility. And so it was, okay, I hear you. We have very different opinions and that's okay. I would say that before I had boundaries with my mom, I, we, the conversation would have devolved into screaming, yelling, name calling, all the things. (laughs) And I have a, one of the boundaries that I have with my mom is that there are certain subjects that we do, that I don't want to talk about and that it's okay for me to not want to talk about them. And one of the ways that I define a boundary, a healthy boundary, is that it is about our behavior, not about the other person's behavior. So other people My mom gets to ask questions. She gets to say things that she wants to say. And I get to decide if I want to engage it or not. And that's how I maintain the boundary. Because I think think a lot of times the, I don't want to say the mistake, but the trouble we get into around boundaries is that we are trying to tell other people what they can and cannot do. And... It is a lot, it's much easier to maintain a boundary when you're not trying to control them and you're in fact giving them permission, but you know what? I just don't want to talk about this. So if you want to talk about this with your friends who agree with you, go for it. It's just a conversation I'm not going to be having. That's such helpful framework. And of course that goes beyond a daughter's relationship with her mother. It's really helpful, I imagine, for people throughout the year, but especially when it comes to politics, when it comes to something going on in our government. And I really appreciate that framework, that definition that I think a lot of people do get triggered when they feel like they're being told what to do. And like Mm -hmm. the government and politics brings up a lot of that for people. It's probably at the crux of it that people wondering, like, how are they being controlled? And then are they in alignment with what other people are doing? And even that word control, it's interesting, like looking at different perspectives on politics, all these ideas around like freedom to choose is fascinating. Because to your point, it's interesting where 
you could simultaneously encourage a behavior, but yet not want other people to be able to choose to do that. It almost, and I'm curious if I was understanding that correctly, because it sounded confusing. You said that your mother was supportive over your choice to do that and encouraging you to do it sounded like, but then it also sounds like on when it came to making a decision for the law, your mother didn't seem to be in support of other people being able to make that choice. Is that right? It appears so, yes. <laughs> Again, I'm not having that conversation with her, and so I can't speak for her, but that was my impression. I and like again, even I'm that you're saying that appears so, and that was your impression. Like Even that shows so much emotional maturity, but also that you're encouraging in this situation, like my mother can speak for herself, not that she's being invited to our conversation right now, but you're not speaking on behalf of her. And I think that in itself comes up so much where we interpret somebody and then we pass it on to others when that person's no longer in the room. And they, it's so easy for things to get misconstrued. And we see this in the media all the time, like that all of this gossip that goes on or he said, she said, but you being able to say, I am not able to speak on this because my mother's not here and I didn't even have that conversation with her. So I don't know exactly what she would say. It's just that you knew you didn't want to go there with her because of your own boundary. Yeah. Yeah. I can guess (laughs) what she thinks and I could tell you what I think she gets. I could tell you what I guess she thinks, but I don't know if that's useful here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that in itself is useful to me because I think we often have a tendency when we just disagree with somebody or we assume that they think differently than us to project a lot or to talk about the past. And it also sounds what you're describing, perhaps your mother's perspective has changed over the years. There's been time that's passed since you went through that experience Maybe she has a completely different perspective these days. Maybe a political figure swayed her opinion. (laughs) Maybe There's, There's a lot. And it's interesting, too, because so much of what we're going through as individuals is we're changing constantly. So to assume that somebody's going to be the same that they were however many years ago, it's not even necessarily fair. Yeah. And what you said about, how did you put it? When I think you, what sparked it was when you talked about that we just might disagree, right? And that they're from a macro perspective, right? There's the whole country or two countries that don't agree about something or two political parties, or on the micro level, you and your mom and me and my mom might not agree on something. And I've done a lot of work in the past few years, especially on understanding trauma and the nervous system. And I'm no expert, but I do have a nervous system (laughs) and I have become intimately familiar with it and, and how it, how my particular nervous system is. And also from the perspective of development as a child, or you're born and you are born into a family and maybe hopefully you have your mom and there is I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but almost a biological imperative that we belong to our mothers, right? We And if we don't, if there's something there that is interrupting that or affecting that, we might die. So we want our moms to like us, <laughs> right? And approve of us and think we're okay and agree with us so that she continues to feed us and clothe us and house us and take care of us. Now, obviously, when 40, 50, 60 years later, that still lives inside. And being able to understand that my nervous system, right, is attuned to whether or not my mother agrees with me. And if she doesn't, it feels dangerous and vice versa, And I will say that even though I'm not speaking for my mother, again, this is my perception. It's my experience of my mom. And I say this with a lot of compassion. I think my mom's nervous system has a, like, let me put it this way. Her trigger 
is when she, or maybe it's better to put it this way. When she is triggered, she goes into fight energy. So if we look at, if we look at a trauma system or, or I'm not trauma system, nervous system responses of fight, flight, freeze, and fawn, and we all have a tendency when triggered to default into one or another. Of course, we experience all of them. But my experience is that my mom goes into fight energy, fight mode. I tend to freeze. So I have learned, and I say this not as someone who is trying to please her or fawn (laughs) at her, but more, is this something that I want? Do I want to trigger my mother right now? No, I don't. (laughs) Actually, there are times when my brain says, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) But, but that's up to me, right? That's my, there, that is a boundary, right? A boundary with myself. Right. Yeah. And that's really fascinating. There's a number of things I can relate to there. Uh, My mother seems to go into that fight mode. I'm definitely more of a freeze. I don't like fighting. Although in some experiences, I will fight. I just don't find it safe to fight, especially around somebody else who likes to fight. I'll fight to a certain extent. And then I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not waving the white flag. I'll just rather walk away. But that's also something my mother does is she has a tendency to leave uncomfortable conversations. And so there's not even opportunity to get into it deep. And that trigger side of it's an interesting question because there are times I give my sisters around, for example, or my dad, (laughs) if they're standing in the same room and my mother is in the foreground and my father or my sister are in the background, they'll be like, doing one of these, you know, cut it out, please, the simmer down. Like they're like begging me. And because my mom and I, out of all the family members, we tend to butt heads more than any other dynamic in my media family. And so I, it's interesting because I don't think I'm trying to trigger my mom, but from the outside perspective, they're picking up the triggers. And for me, it's wait a second, like I need to stand up for myself. That that's my version of fighting. But at a certain point, if it gets too deep into a fight, I'm out. I'm not trying to, I'm, it's like my brain has thought, eh, this is only going to get worse. There doesn't seem to be a way to resolve it. And I'm triggered. So maybe it's best to walk away. Yeah. And Right. I think one of the things that I like to, let me put it this way. I used to, shame is a whole other subject that I'm really fascinated with and done a lot of work on shame. And one of the things that was very helpful was recognizing, and I think a lot of people do this, is that we tend to shame ourselves for our normal, natural bodily responses which include fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. They are, all of these are intelligent responses and they have a lot of intelligence and wisdom in them. And, but we have a tendency to shame ourselves and others, right? People shouldn't fight. Oh, you're running away. That's, you're a wimp, right? (laughs) Oh, you're frozen. What's wrong with you? Or you're people pleasing, right? But these are intelligent responses. And when we can unshame ourselves, unshame them, unshame the response, right? There's so much humanity in that. So yeah, it sounds like you're already doing that. I'm trying. And one thing I was noticing from your website is that you did the Dare to Lead. Is it a certification program? Is I don't want to mm-hmm. call it the wrong name, but that's through Brene Brown's work. And is that right? The Dare to Lead program, is that started by her? Yes, but let me clarify and say that I didn't do the work with her. It's through the program. <laughs> I yeah. did a program. That would have been cool to do it with her. I did it with a woman who, and I always get her name wrong because she has two last names, Nicole Lewis Kieber, I think it is, or is it Kieber Lewis? I can't remember. But Nicole is is did do the work with Brene, and she is certified to run these programs. So I did it with Nicole. 
That is so cool. Did your journey through understanding shame develop through that program? Was it already there? Your journey in better understanding shame, how was that shaped by being part of a program like that? I was doing the work before that, but I will say, I think it was in 2009 when there was a, I think one of Brene Brown's TED Talks went viral and it was about shame. And I, I do credit that with being one of the, oh, oh, shame. And I started following her work at that point and have done lots of different programs and personal work have been, I've had coaches work with me on it. And I have a million stories I could tell you about unshaming myself. And in fact, I'm actually meeting tomorrow with a representative from my publisher because they're like, what are you going to write a book about shame? Okay, here we go. (laughs) Amazing, Uh, because that's a topic that I feel like I can't get enough of. It's interesting though, because one thing that stood out in our communication about doing this podcast was about how mother-daughter relationships are a feminist issue and often happen in the context of patriarchy, misogyny, and white supremacy. And I feel like that it's an interesting time to talk about that because something I've been noticing coming up on social media a bit recently is some people looking at people like Brene Brown and wondering, is this a person that white women, feminist women are really into? Does she speak to somebody who's not a white woman? And I've been reflecting a lot on that because it certainly seems like that's either her target audience or that's someone that she naturally attracts. And I'm curious on your thoughts of that as well as afterwards, I would love to get into more about that statement around mother-daughter relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I have also seen, and again, I'm not going to speak for Brene for sure, but I know several months ago she announced on her social media platforms that she was taking a sabbatical. And again, I didn't really pay much attention to it, but I did see some conversation around she has the privilege and she has the money and she has the all the things that allow and make it okay for her to take a sabbatical. And I think I mentioned this before we started recording. My... It's interesting because I'm noticing actually a little bit of shame (laughs) around what I'm about to say. Like, I feel like I came to a lot of this stuff late in life, relatively late in life. And I really respect and admire the younger generations and and seeing what they're doing and what what they're saying and how they're saying it and what they are choosing to highlight. Years ago, I started following more Black women and other women of color and just wanting to broaden my horizons because I'll just, nobody knows who I am really, but I am a, a almost 60-year-old boomer, right, named Karen, white boomer named Karen. <laughs> and I'm right on the cusp of the boomerhood thing, right? And I came late to it, relatively speaking. And so feminism and understanding the systems of oppression. And I think, I also think that for many of us, no matter how old we are, right, learning the real history of our country, right? Not just the quote unquote whitewashed version, which is what we all, I know that, right? There was like what used to be called the first wave of feminism back in the seventies, right? When I was in middle school and high school. And then I just went on with my life, like happy go lucky kid growing up and being a young adult in the eighties and nineties. And now all of, now all of a sudden it, oh, let's like this, look at what's really happening. Look what it, look at everything that I had no idea was happening. Right. Because I was in my safe, white, little New England bubble. <laughs> That's something we share in common. I, that I, It's really interesting whenever I, I visit New England to look at it through a lens like that and really try to understand, okay, what was it that caused some of my ignorance? How was I able to stay so blinded to a lot of these bigger issues that have been going on for so long? And that in itself is just a huge privilege. And I think it's amazing. I expect someone like Brene Brown 
based on her past behavior, that she will acknowledge some of these things, much the way that she handled everything that went on with Spotify and Joe Rogan months ago and earlier in 2022. And she received a lot of pushback. And yet I thought it was done with so much eloquence. And I hope that it's something that I don't know if she has addressed it, but I imagine she wouldn't shy away from it. And that gives an opportunity because by by speaking out against those things, she's teaching all of us who have had similar privilege, maybe not the same in terms of fame and money, success and all of that, but to have the white woman upper middle class or whatever class status, that privilege there to an extent, how that we're just looking at things through a different lens. And I think if someone like her can address that openly, she has opportunity to teach other like people that look like her or who grew up like her, and then also welcome in people that don't look like her or didn't grow up like her and say, hey, this is a safe place truly for all of us because we're not going to ignore the elephant in the room. Yeah. And yeah, I and agree. Like the younger generations are really inspire people that are younger than me. I'm like, wow, like I would never have thought about Brene Brown in that lens. Yeah. Yep. And so the question about mother-daughter relationships happening in the context of all these things. And again, this is, I've read a lot of things. There's a lot of people talking about this in one form or another, but my take on it is that again, and this is based on my experience as Somebody from New England, upper middle class. Did I have some things that were difficult? Yes. My parents got divorced when I was two and a half. My mom married a man when I was five who was an alcoholic. I, I don't know if I would call my mother an alcoholic or not, but there was certain, there was violence. There was stuff. But when I think about, so my mom is 82 And my grandmother, her mom, was born in 1917. And towards the end of her life, she died in 2015 at the age of 98. And I was actually my grandmother's legal guardian for several years because my mom and her did not get along. (laughs) So there's like a history there, right? It's patterns. Again, just this is like me reading a bunch of things, listening to a bunch of different things and putting some connecting dots So my grandmother was born, as I said, in 1917 at the end or the middle of World War One, and and her family was German. And my she got married to my grandfather, I think, in the late 30s. And my mom was born in 1940. And did you know that a lot of the parenting books that were written back then were written by Nazis? I thought you were going to say something else. So I started preemptively nodding, but no, I did not know that. I did hear a lot about the evolution of parenting books from a different book I can reference later, but I want to hear more about this first. Yeah. And I don't know if it was like a lot of Nazis, but there were a couple probably. And probably what you're talking about is similar, right? Where for whatever reason, psychology at the time, which was not in its infancy was not where it is today, obviously. It was, here is this blank slate child that you have. You can mold it and form it into what you want it to be. And you can train it and don't love it too much. Don't spoil it. Don't put it on a schedule. If they cry, let them cry. Not happy, nice things. And what I know about my grandmother, and let me also preface all of this by saying that one of the things that I have learned to do, and it is something I love to work with others on, is the idea that you can tell a story in a way that you like how you feel when you tell the story. It doesn't have to be true. And so what I'm about to say, I don't know if it's true, but I like telling it this way because I like how I feel And I like how I show up and how I am when I believe it to be true. So I think my grandmother did not want to get married and have children. 
I think she wanted to be a movie star or model. I think she wanted to go to Broadway and be an actress. I think she wanted to have a very different life than the life she ended up with. And so my grand, my, my mom was her eldest child, as I said, born in 1940. And based on what I've heard from friends and family, not friends necessarily, family from my own mom, from other people who knew my grandmother, my grandmother just was, I don't want this child around. And she would be sent away. My mom would be sent away little, really little. My mom has told me that my grandmother didn't let her have friends. And like, she's told me like the first real friend she had was when she was like, I don't know, 12. So there's this con, so the context of why do mothers and daughters struggle so much? And I know it's different across different races, different backgrounds, different, all the different intersections that there could possibly be. But from my perspective, (laughs) white women born, let's say between 1920 and 1980, but it's probably even longer than that. But let's just say those women, right, were born into white supremacy without knowing and patriarchy and misogyny, all of that stuff, which we like, we didn't see it. It's like a fish in water. And if you say to the fish, how's the water? The fish is like, what do you mean? So like, there we all are in this water, not knowing we're in the water. And when you grow up a little bit, you have a little bit of life experience and you are like, oh, wait a minute, I was swimming in some water that I didn't realize I was swimming in. Why? And I think a lot of women tend to see it as it's my mother. She's the bad, evil one. Like, why did I get this particular mother? Why is she so awful? Why doesn't she have boundaries? Why is she an alcoholic? Why is she bipolar? Why is she this? Why is she that? And why is she? (laughs) And this also comes back around a little bit to the unshaming piece, because I think that psychological, the sort of German Nazi psychological thing was, again, like, we need to pathologize everything. And there's something wrong with you versus there's something wrong with the water that we're swimming in. (laughs) That is such eye-opening information to take in. And I found an article in the background from Scientific American for anyone who wants to read more. If you have other resources, Karen, feel free to send them over. And it's (laughs) the little summary at the top says, the Nazi regime Hmm. urged German mothers to ignore their toddlers' emotional needs, the better to raise hardened soldiers and followers. Attachment researchers say that the harmful effects of that teaching may be affecting later generations. 100%. And I have some German heritage too. And I was just like, interesting to think like, wow, what got passed down, whether through epigenetics or just the child rearing. The other resource I was thinking of is from this book that has such an intense title. It's called A Generation of Sociopaths, How Baby Boomers Betrayed America. And I read this book last year and I was like deeply impacted by it because it's, it feels a little biased at times, but it has all this interesting resor- research to back it up. And some of it gets into parenting books from the 1940s. There is this author named Dr. Benjamin Spock, and he promoted permissive parenting and some of the other things that you're talking about here too, and how the ripple effect of those parenting styles has impacted all these different generations. And I think part of what you're getting at here is it's easy to point the finger and want to blame parents. Like I felt that many times. There's my relationship with my mom is interesting because in some ways, like more on the surface level, we have a good relationship. In some ways on the surface, people can see the tension and see the challenges that we have. The older I get, 
And the more I learn about myself and learn things from people like you, Karen, I just start to wonder, wow, there's a lot of work to be done, but I don't really know how to get there because I do find myself feeling resentment and I do find myself wanting to blame, even though on another level, I'm like, well, I can't like fully blame her, but I I do feel like there's so much there that is the impact of her. But then when you're saying things like this, I'm thinking, yeah, but what about her relationship with her mother? And I haven't really understood enough of that relationship. And you're, this conversation is inspiring me to talk to her and better understand what went on with her mom. And your cat seems to agree that I should... <laughs> I think your cat's egging us on. It's, yeah, let's have these (laughs) tough conversations. Either that or your cat's sensing the emotions. And I feel like animals have such an amazing sense of like when we need some comfort or your cat wants to be fed. I don't know. Yeah, she's old and cranky. (laughs) I hope that you've noticed during this show how much there is to learn from other people. Really important conversations can happen on podcasts. And this is a great time for me to mention the show's sponsor, Zencaster, because they help me make all of this happen. They have created this platform that's all in one, allows me to record really high quality audio, record video up to 4K resolution. They now have all these neat new features that'll help podcasters like myself distribute through all the major players where you're listening to this, monetize like ads, like including this very one that I'm doing right now, even do some editing. It's been an absolutely amazing tool. So if you're interested in having these types of conversations on a show of your own, or if you have a show and you're looking to improve it, I cannot recommend Zencaster enough. And because they're sponsoring the show, they are offering a 30% off discount on your first three months of Zencaster Professional. All you have to do is use my code WELLEVATORZEN, that's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R-Z-E-N, at ZencasterPricing.com, or <laughs> Zencaster.com slash pricing. I will link to that so that you don't make the same mistakes <laughs> as I do in the show notes, as well as in the description of this episode to make it really easy. Zencaster.com slash pricing. See, I could edit this out using their tool, but I'm not going to do that. I want to keep this authentic like my show. So thank you for listening. I want you to have the same pretty simple experiences that I have, aside from all the human error out there that can happen. Uh, And I don't have my editors do my uh, ads at all. But I hope that you get to have this wonderful experience with your podcasting and content needs so that you can tell your story as well as other people's stories that come on your show as guests. Now back to the episode. But I wanted to say something. So that was one element of looking at mother-daughter relationships is context, right? And there's also the very real feelings that we have, like you said, resentment or anger or grief or disappointment, all of the emotions that we would experience when things aren't perfect, (laughs) not that they're ever perfect. And so I, it's like walking a line between, okay, here's the context. So it's not your mother's fault. You shouldn't be blaming her. (laughs) You shouldn't be upset. Just get over it, right? No. Then there's, okay, I had experiences as a child and as maybe as a young adult would say that even though my parents' divorce was absolutely hugely impactful on my life, a trauma in my life. It wasn't until I was a young adult that my relationship with my mom became what I think of as being very unhealthy, although at the time I didn't. And so my point here is that how do we, okay, yep, there's the context of all the systems of oppression and the, and why they are the way they are, or could be why they could be that way. But it doesn't mean that we it's both and, right? We They did the best they could. That is language that a lot of people like to use. And I suffered. And are they humans? Yes. And do I, do I have some healing to do 
healing, putting that in quotes. And because my mom can't heal me, abuse, traumas that happens at the hands of somebody else can't be healed at that person's hands. We are responsible for that now. And it's nuanced. We're taught not to blame and shame and find fault. But I think what happens is at least this is what happened for me for a while is I'm not supposed to blame my mom. So I'm going to blame myself. And so it's like, how can we just take blame out of the equation altogether? Right? Yep. There's this over here and yep. Sometimes I'm still triggered and yep. I wish it was different and yep. It hurts sometimes still. And What's important to me now? Who am I now? What are my values? What do I stand for? What do I want? What do, you know, and that's, that is what healthy boundaries are based on. They are based on our values, not on punishing somebody else. Boundaries can include estranging yourself from someone and boundaries can also be used to prevent estrangement. If that's again, like I, I work, I work with a lot of people and some of them absolutely want to be estranged and it's a, the best choice for them. But most people are like, I don't know, <laughs> I wish she would die. It would make things easier. Also, speaking of which, there is a book out now by a woman named Jeanette McCurdy, who was You're familiar with it? And she wrote a book called I'm Glad My Mom Died. (laughs) And I know it's a very provocative title, but the book is beautifully written and really does speak to that idea that we love our mothers and hate them sometimes. I've been wanting to read that book and you've further inspired me because it's being discussed a lot as we're recording this at the end of September, 2022, when I think it came out just a few weeks, came out in August, but it's been talked to a lot about and people really seem to be moved by that book. And through the context of this conversation is a little incentive because I wondered, A, is it just a provocative title? And B, is it mostly written for people that were fans of her work as an actress? But it sounds like there's a lot of depth there, especially for a woman who's what in maybe her late twenties, early thirties. I'm not sure, but that's so. I, I remember when that book came out. She's been doing a press tour and really talking about some tough things. But it seems like it's incredibly important because, as you mentioned, I don't know if she's a millennial or Gen Z, but that age range that she's in does seem like they're leaning into these tough things and speaking openly about them. And they're moving through some of the shame that we've been addressing here. And I think that's part of what is really inspiring. And I wonder, what is it about younger millennials, Gen Z and beyond that don't seem as impacted by shame? as older millennials and older generations. Do you have a perspective on that, Karen? Yeah. And let me say that I had no idea who she was. I did not. I, now I know there's a, there was a show called iCarly. <laughs> was not my, had no clue. I don't have children of my own. And so I'm not aware of any of that kind of stuff. But yeah, shame, something I have realized is I think this is the thing that gets passed down is the idea that, and if you think about it from the perspective of six, 8,000 years ago, is when patriarchy sort of came in as a system. And there was tribal living. And again, I'm not a, a scholar on this. This is just me sort of connecting my dot, dots in my own head. And so if somebody wasn't okay, if somebody was not doing their part if or was not well in some way, right, they needed to go in order for the tribe and the other members to be, to survive. It was also at a time when women were, what I think started to happen is 
right? Women were deemed not equal, right? Not equal to men, right? Less than men. They were overpowered. They were seen as property. And as such, I think women started to learn that in order to survive, especially if they had their own children, right, to have their children survive, the children need to toe the line and be whatever it is, the narrow definition of what's okay. You need to fit into that. And if you don't, I will shame you as a protective mechanism to keep you in that narrow definition of what's okay. This is, and I call it protective shaming. And, and I think it's that, and again, like this is, this conversation is vague. It's, I'm sure there's much more nuance. And if we go back in history, there's all kinds of things that we could look at, but I'm just taking the sort of one nub of like, how did we get here? Why do we do this? And I imagine that it is this ancient impulse that lives within us, women especially, that if we're not okay, according to society's definition, then the way that we stay connected to resources is to shame ourselves so that we stay in that definition. Yes, it's continuously fascinating to me. And I don't know if that's just because I identify a lot of shame within myself. It seems like a lot of people do. But again, my question keeps coming back to, is that a generational thing? And is it something that we're slowly working through so much female empowerment. There's also so much awareness around gender in general, like in non-binary people that are a different gender than they were born into and the impact this has on us. And certainly as we started talking off about the political ripple effect and something I mentioned to you too offline that I had seen you posting on Instagram recently is what's going on in other country and countries and how women are treated very different in a lot of cases much worse in certain countries and they're punished for it in ways I could never even imagine. So this conversation, we have to take into account the country that we live in that we grew up in and how things can be different for women in different parts of the world or genders and races. And that's part of expanding our lens out and saying, this is not a human experience. We're not all living an equal experience right now because it really depends on who you are, where you grew up, where you currently live, what's going on at that time. And it sometimes can feel really overwhelmed and a little heartbreak, very heartbreaking because I think going back to something that you and I have in common is growing up in New England as white women, more and more I'm recognizing like, wow, the privilege of not having to worry about some of these things. And then the privilege to even think that these things are easily overcome. But right now in September, 2020, we're seeing horrific things happen in other parts of the world. And I, my brain just can't even believe that's going on in 2022. Yeah. One of the things I, again, grew up without the internet, having the internet and realizing how many interesting people there are in the world and doing amazing things. And has having the internet has allowed me to obviously can't know what it's like to be somebody else, but to listen to other people, other, I follow a lot of black women. There's several of them who I just really, I love listening. I love reading what they have to say because it's from a perspective that I don't have. And something that I sense and maybe this is true in other countries in some of the other countries where these horrific things are happening to women and some of the horrific things that have happened to black women specifically or indigenous other people of color women of color i sense a maturity in them that i and again i'm not saying all white women are immature right but a sense of maturity a sense of healing in them of work that they've done because they had to 
that white women haven't had to do. And, and that's, it's funny, I've actually heard the term used that especially white women are infantilized. That's how we are kept helpless, hopeless. Don't worry your little head about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That gives me chills. It's so disturbing because if you start to look at all these systems that are created to oppress people. And sometimes the oppression is right in your face. And sometimes the oppression is so subtled or buried and you don't even recognize that you're being oppressed. And maybe you can say that about most human beings with the exception White men may not experience that quite as much, but I don't know. Also, there's classism, ableism, like there's so many other factors that go into how people are treated, how they're raised, what they believe about themselves, the shame that's instilled and conversations like this are just so big. And I was curious about some of your resources. I would love to hear more about the women, if you know their names off the top of your head, or if you want to send them to me later to include in the show notes for this episode, I'd love to pass those on to the listener too. Yeah. Desiree Lynn Attaway, Erica Hines. There's a lot. I'm also going to mention somebody who's not a woman of color. She's Jewish. Her name is Kara Lowenthal. She has a podcast called Unfuck Your Brain. And I have, she she did a, and she continues to do a an advanced certification in feminist coaching, which I did earlier this year. Oh my gosh, there's so many. And I'm like, I can't, I, I feel like I should just go online right now and look, but I won't. If you want to send them over to me afterwards, I'd be happy yeah. to put them in the show notes as, as well with a link to your own podcast, because yeah. as we begin to wrap up this conversation, I feel like there's just so many places we could go that we haven't gone yet. And I imagine you're covering so much of the subject matter on your show. So I'd love to hear more about that for the listener too, who's curious and and what you're not covering. (laughs) My podcast is bite-sized compared to yours. And on purpose, I just, this is the way I am. I probably have ADHD or something, but I have a podcast called Dear Adult Daughter. And I also send out a newsletter at least weekly, sometimes a little bit more than weekly with just things about boundaries, things about shame, but always through the lens of the mother-daughter relationship. I don't go and riff on things like what's happening in Iran or racism specifically. I don't feel like that's really my, my... So I do recognize, as I said, from the macro perspective, that these are all forces that have affected and can affect a mother-daughter relationship. But my podcast is more geared towards answering people's questions. Sometimes they're more inspirational. Sometimes they're more like how to go. Here's five tips on setting boundaries kind of thing. And I think my longest one might be 20 minutes. I think the shortest one is a minute. (laughs) But yeah, dear adult daughter, you can find it anywhere. Karen, I'll link to your podcast in the show notes for this episode to make it really easy because again, you're such a wealth of knowledge on the subject matter. And I think actually the short episodes are so valuable because sometimes somebody is feeling pain and they want to resolve it. That's not what my show is designed to do. Mine are conversations that are deep and allow somebody to drift in and out of these thoughts with us. But to have a solution, a piece of advice, a tip, like something to just help somebody deal with these struggles, which are so tender and triggering. And imagine how many people are leaning on you for support through something that they've been experiencing their whole lives. Because That mother-daughter relationship is a lifelong journey. One of you is going to experience it longer than the other. But I'm also curious before we wrap up, since I think so much about gender and really broadening my perspective, do you do work with some trans women or with non-binary people who 
are also trying to explore their relationships because I imagine there's a whole nother level of that I could never understand and might be extremely challenging. I have not specifically addressed that. I have not worked with somebody who is transgender or non-binary. I have worked with gay women, lesbian, lesbian or bi. And it's not that I don't think I could, but I also am not sure if I'd be the best. Again, I don't want to go out of, I want to, I, there are other resources out there. There actually is somebody named Sam Dylan Finch, they and they do a lot of writing. I'm not sure if they have a podcast or not. There are also coaches in that. I, again, I don't know if those coaches deal with it from, oh, you're dealing with your mom and this is and like a specific like niche like I have. But there are more and more coaches. And in fact, the school that I went to, which was, it's called the Life Coach School, over the years, it's just really exploded and they have really taken a diverse equity inclusion, like all of that. And there are all kinds of coaches all in different intersections that are from that school. So I'm guessing that maybe if they don't specifically say, Hey, I'm going to coach you on your mother, that they would be probably better suited and could coach them on that than me. It's not or that maybe not- the partnership. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If somebody came to me, I would absolutely try to help them. And if I didn't think I could, if I didn't feel like it was appropriate, or I would recommend them to somebody else. You have so many great resources on your website. You have the podcast I mentioned, books, a boundaries workshop. You are really offering I also love the, as a side note, your sign up to receive love notes email. <laughs> like just who doesn't want to receive love notes? I guess somebody might, but for me, I just think that sounds so appealing. And I just feel the sense of care, You, whether it's intentional or not, exude like this motherly love, let me take care of you vibe that I felt throughout this conversation, but also on, on your website that has feels like a safe place to do some deep healing. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. As someone who chose very specifically not to have children, I have heard that a lot over my life, maybe even more now. And I think it's the result of the work I've been doing for myself. And it's, it, but it still takes me by surprise when people say that. And I received that. Thank you. You're welcome. That's something else we could have talked a lot about because I'm at this point in my life where I feel a lot of pressure to decide about having kids and I keep leaning towards not having them. And I think that's a discussion that's speaking of younger generations. Like it seems like millennials and younger are like finding more confidence in having those, making that decision and then being proud about it. And I'm curious if you feel like touching upon it before we wrap up about your decision, because you do so much work around mothers and you're not talking about raising children. You're talking about healing a relationship with your mother. And do you think that impacted your choice not to have children or was it a separate thing for the most part? The story goes that mom has actually told me this. She's from the, from when you were very young, you used to say you didn't want to have kids. And there isn't a time in my life where I ever was like, yeah, I'm going to have kids. I think there was a time in my life where I thought, oh yeah, someday I'll get married and have kids, but not because I wanted to. And I would say for you, if you don't mind me offering this for you specifically, if you can think of a time in your life or... Has there ever been something that you were just so completely sure about? It's a, I laugh at that question because I have trouble making decisions. <laughs> and I'm sure that's, I feel like a lot of that's rooted in shame and people pleasing and not feeling a lot of self-agency. And that's a big part of my journey. But there are certainly some things I have. I'm very passionate about my work and always yeah. have been, even when I was doing different work. I, I just, that feels in a lot of alignment, like I'm very purpose-driven 
So that's usually when I feel more decisive. Because I would, I've done this for myself because I'm not decisive on everything either. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know what to do. But because I have this one thing that I'm like, there was, there's never ever been any doubt, right? It was like always boom. And I love the idea that when I'm feeling doubtful about something that I can tap into what it feels like because I have had this experience of certainty, right? And I think what happens is we have this tendency to think that, oh, I'm not allowed to be certain because what if I fail? But what if you can be certain and you can fail and it doesn't matter, right? Like you you can choose to have to feel certain and you can use the experience of your work or your passion, right? There's no doubt in your mind that you have this passion right? And you know what it feels like. You, you can, t- you, I'm, I don't know if I'm making sense. You can drop yourself into the experience of that. And so it would be interesting to experiment with this other choice and try on what would it feel like to, I know what certainty feels like, what would it be like to apply that to this? And to clarify that exercise, because that sounds really interesting, <laughs> is it that you are taking something that you feel certain about and using that as a frame of reference? Because I know what certainty feels like, that should give me clarity about this doubt that I'm feeling. Or is it that you take that feeling of certainty and imagine that you felt certain about this other choice? Does that make sense? Yeah. The way I, when you feel certain, do you act or show up a certain way, do certain things, right? When you're certain that you have a podcast, right? And you're certain that it comes out every week, or I'm not sure how often it comes out. And your certainty has you taking the action of getting guests and setting them up and doing all the things, right? So it would be interesting to try on the certainty, the feeling of certainty, and see what actions you take as a result in regards to this other thing. Doesn't mean you have to make the decision, but see what actions flow from being certain. What would it be like to say, okay, I've decided I'm not having children. And I'm certain and I know what certainty feels like, and I'm going to feel that and just see what happens over the course of a week. Or you could say, I have decided, I am certain, I'm going to have a child, I want to have a child, and see what happens over the course of a week. I know it sounds vague and weird, but like you, your brain will go to work on that for you. And I don't know are you if you have a partner or any of that, but, or if you want to have a child without a partner, right? Like all, there's all the different options. But it would be interesting to see what the feeling of certainty would have you do as an experiment. Is that making sense? It does. And I've never thought about it that way. So it's really helpful because a lot comes up just reflecting on that. And I also feel like the listener can think about that. this. It doesn't have to be about having children, but just tapping into that. It Definitely your life coaching skills are coming <laughs> into play here, which is so bit, lovely. Yeah. Again, what amazing guidance to offer the listener and to me too. I'm so grateful for the time you spent with me and the explorations and your willingness to get uncomfortable and vulnerable. It's just been so lovely and you've left me wanting more and I hope the listener feels the same way so again that's why I'm so grateful that you have a podcast too but also all those resources on your website and I always try to make it really easy for the listener so two places you can get more from Karen one is right in the description of this episode on your podcast player there's a link to her website And if you want even more and all the resources, we mentioned books, we other podcasts, you have all of your fantastic resources, Karen, and thank you so much for sharing them. I can't wait to check them out. Those will all be in the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And 
hopefully you can take some action or at the very least just give some reflection to these tender topics that we've explored today and know that you're supported and there are safe spaces between the two of us to take the next step to look further or whatever you decide to do beyond this episode. And Karen, thank you once again. It has been so wonderful getting to know you and hear more about your work and your perspectives on things. Thank you, Whitney. I really had a lot of fun and yeah, I could do this all day. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you love that? Like speaking of passion and decisiveness, I could do it. It's just such a magical thing to be able to connect with one another through the medium of podcasting. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.